fist, and as they go, you'll turn your Bibles today, 1 Kings chapter 19, if you would, 1 Kings chapter 19. I love to see in the Bible where individuals met God. They actually uh, find themselves in the presence of God. One of the reasons the Bible is so fascinating is because we see these people in uh, situations. They're people just like us. You could say the Bible is a series of biographies about uh, people. And uh, that's one of them that might do a lot of reading. I love to read history. And one of the things I love to do is read biographies. I just finished one on Robert E. Lee and and uh, earlier this year, George Armstrong Custer, and there's a different ones I like to read about, Abraham Lincoln, George Patton, and those, uh, of course, uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon and different uh, preachers in the past as well. I love to read biographies because I love to read about people and the lives of men uh, that God used in a great way. Now, the Bible teaches us mostly this way, not so much with lectures as it does using people and the stories and that we can see people in action. Now, there's a genius in that. It's a good method because we are rather easily bored with abstract truth. One of my favorite writers uh, is, or historians is Stephen Ambrose, and one of the things he always said is nothing is more fascinating to people than people. And when you read the Bible, that's what you see a lot of, how God works in the lives of people. When it comes to a life story, we remember it, we get involved with it, and it makes an impact. Now, ultimately, the fact that the Old Testament is basically stories and biographies of real people uh, points to an amazing truth uh, that when God decided to send salvation, he did not send a perfect principle. He sent a perfect person. Uh, when it comes to the salvation, he didn't send an abstract philosophy. He sent a human being. It's interesting in the Bible, John chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now, the word, the, the word, word there is logos. That word logos means uh, uh, the original language, sayings of God, moral precepts of God, doctrine, the meaning of life, uh, the reason for life. And that's no surprise then, that first part of the verse, because after all, philosophers and, and uh, great thinkers of the past uh, have been talking about that for years, the logos if that's the meaning of life, it's that the reason for life, then surely God would have it. But see, John doesn't stop there. He ends in verse 1 of John 1, and the Word was God. He says in verse 14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Salvation is a person, Jesus Christ uh, himself. The principle has become a human being. The word, the truth, is flesh. All throughout the Bible, instead of just giving us concepts, he gives us people. And that's one reason why we learn so much from the word of God. We see what God has done with people just like us. Can I remind you that the great Moses and Abraham and Paul, and yes, they were great Christians, but they were made of flesh and blood just like you and I were. And we have to deal with the same things they had to deal with. They had to deal with the same things we did. They didn't have to deal with Twitter. Uh, but everything else they had to deal with. And uh, so we see God working through him. I think you'll look long and hard to find a more flesh and blood person than the man we're looking at today, Elijah. All right? Look with me, if you would, in chapter 19. Let's start at verse number 2. And Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. 
When he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. For, and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Skip down, if you would, to verse number 9. And he came hither into a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord of God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forget, forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Have you ever felt like that? I am the only one left serving God. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. The Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of in of the cave, and behold, there came a voice unto him, and saith, What doest thou here, Elijah? He says again, I've been very jealous of the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life, take it away. The Lord said unto him, Go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Azael, the king over Syria. Father, I pray you'd help us today. As we look at this message, Elijah and the voice, Help us to see something in this that will be a help to us in our hard times as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story starts in chapter 18. You really have to have the setting of what's going on here. And chapter 18 is one of the greatest chapters in the Old Testament, in my opinion. It has one of the greatest stories. Uh, here you have, it's really one of the most dramatic, one of the most spectacular events in all the Bible. Now, for centuries, Israel has had a, tr has had a problem with idol worship. Uh, they would, over the years, they would go after false idols, and they'd have a revival under some judge or a king, and then they'd go back again, and then they'd get right again, they'd go back again. And so uh, they, they, they went back and forth, by the way, kind of like people still do today, you know. And uh, then along comes Ahab, king of Israel. He married a woman named Jezebel. She was the daughter of the priest king of Tyre and Sidon. She was a fanatical follower of the false god Baal, the god of Tyre. And she was a piece of work, this Jezebel was. Wicked, vindictive, domineering, uh, and, and about as bad as you can get in any human being. There was three men having lunch. They were talking about the control, two of them were talking about the control they had over their wives dangerous conversation, but that's what they were saying. And they were talking, and they asked the third man who was being quiet, they said, what about you? And he says, well, I'll tell you. Just the other night I came home, and I saw immediately that my wife was very upset. And it wasn't ten minutes later that she was crawling to me on her hands and knees. I said, wow, what happened? Well, he said, it's like this. She got down on her hands and knees and said, get out of underneath that bed and come fight me like a man. All right, that's the kind of woman Jezebel was. She was not a good wife, she was not a good woman, and she was terrible for the nation of Israel. Jezebel was able to do something that had never happened before in Israel. She was able to make the worship of Baal the national religion of Israel. She brought in hundreds of prophets and priests of Baal, and she set up shop. There was a central religious establishment 
They had seminaries, worship centers. They had a hierarchy. That perhaps the, great, perhaps the greatest spiritual peril Israel has been in is right here during this time. Now, God then sent one of the worst famines they'd ever known. The economy was in tatters. After three years, God sends Elijah to Ahab, and this is where the story gets really dramatic in chapter 18. Elijah meets Ahab, and he challenges him to send all the prophets up to the, uh, of Baal up to Mount Carmel. And he says, here's what we're going to do. You bring the prophets of Baal up, and I'll come up and stand for the Lord God of Israel. Let them pray to their God. Let me pray to my God, and we'll see who answers. Ahab says, you're on. And so 450 prophets show up at Mount Carmel. Elijah is by himself. If there was that announcer that you hear sometime in this corner, weighing in over 30 tons, the 450 prophets of Baal. And here, Elijah, by himself. Well, he was kind of all alone here. Uh, the Lord sets him straight on that later. Thousands of Israelites came to watch this event. Who wouldn't come? Uh, everybody was there. This would have been the biggest thing to happen in years. And Elijah says, you go first. He gives them the opportunity to go first. You can find all this in chapter 18. The prophets of Baal build an altar. They kill a bull as a sacrifice. When all is prepared and all is ready, they begin to pray. They do more than that. They get desperate. Uh, there's, After all, thousands of people are watching them pray to the God they've been forced to worship. You'd kind of embarrass them if you wouldn't answer, wouldn't it? And so they get desperate. And they begin to cry and they begin to pray. And uh, add to that, remember now, I said Elijah was human. Remember when I said that he was flesh and blood? He starts taunting him. Read this. It's, it's pretty phenomenal if you picture the scene. They're, they're desperately crying out to their God, and he starts to taunt them. He says, maybe he's talking. Uh, he might be busy, can't hear you. And then he uses a, uh, another terminology here. He is pursuing. Perhaps he's pursuing. Now, the word pursuing literally means a withdrawal into a private place. And I don't mean to be crude, but this is a euphemism that was, uh, that was common there. Baal may have gone to relieve himself. Now, I know that sounds a little crude, but think about how offensive that is about their God. That's what Elijah's doing. And then he says, maybe he's on a journey, traveling far away, can't hear you. Cry louder. And then he said, maybe he's tired, peradventure he sleepeth and must be awakened. This is, imagine how this would drive them into a frenzy, and it did drive them into a frenzy. The Bible says they started to cut themselves as they screamed and leaped about, and then it cut themselves so bad it wasn't little slices, it was big enough, the Bible says, that the blood gushed out. But here's interesting too, if you look at verse 28 in chapter 18, it says, after their manner. This is normal for them, to cut themselves, hurt themselves as they pray. Can I tell you today, friend, Religion often centers around people hurting themselves. That is never God's plan for us. Uh, there's a name for it, self-flagellation. Uh, that's the devotional practice of beating yourself with whips or hurting yourself in uh, different ways. Saeed Mustafa Zaidi had two boys aged 13 and 15. He made them beat themselves with a gadget containing five curved blades to commemorate the death of Muhammad's grandson. The late Pope John Paul II would whip himself, according to a nun who helped to look after him. It is not uncommon for Catholics in the Philippines to nail themselves to wooden crosses every year around Easter time in a gory practice of trying to atone for their sins. Any religion, friend, that teaches the way to redemption is to hurt yourself 
is not from the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I tell you why? Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 answers that question. But he was wounded for our transgressions. But he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. You see, he took our punishment. But we wouldn't have to. Well, midday passed and still they cried out to a God that would not answer. Oh, the frustration of false religion crying out to a God that can't hear you. Elijah rose. It's now evening. He had given them all day. He begins by saying, come near unto me. I like the fact that truth does not have to hide. Have you ever seen that? He says, come near to me. Truth doesn't mind if it's scrutinized. Because every time truth is scrutinized, it's going to even reveal itself greater. And so Paul, he wasn't at all worried about that. He starts out by saying, come near unto me. He repaired the altar of the Lord. He sacrificed a bull on it. Then he said something strange. Throw water on it. And we're not talking a little water. We're talking a lot of water. Throw a bunch of water. They threw so much that it soaked the wood. It soaked the sacrifice on top of it. And there was a trench around the altar. And it filled the trench with water. And Elijah stepped up and prayed. It wasn't a long prayer. Remember these uh, false prophets, they had prayed all day long and screamed and cried and cut themselves. Elijah said 63 words. And the Bible says, then the fire of the Lord fell. I love that phrase. It's a wonderful phrase. This enormous blaze didn't just consume the sacrifice. It consumed everything. It burned the wood. It burned the bowl. It burned the stones. It burned the. Li it even licked up the water in the trench. The dust even burned, the Bible says. And when the people saw this, they did what was the only thing left to do. They fell down on their face before God, and on the ground they began to shout, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. Elijah raises his voice above all this, and he orders them to kill the prophets of Baal. They rose up and slaughtered those 450 prophets of Baal. Now, next, Elijah comes to Ahab. Imagine the look on Ahab's face at about this time. It says, There's a sound of abundance of rain. He prays, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind arose, and a heavy rain was on its way. Remember, it hadn't rained for over three years. Ahab rode off to Jezreel, his capital, and the Bible says Elijah beat him there even though he was on foot. They both got to Jezreel. This chapter ends with both of them arriving in this capital city. And then we have the text we read. Now you might read this, you might think along with me, the way I, it seemed like something's wrong here. Seems like it's a, how could the despair of chapter 19 come that quickly after the victory in chapter 18? I mean, Ahab was on the run, rain was coming down, the altar had been consumed, the, really the entire cult of Baal had been discredited. Elijah ran to Jezreel because I, I believe that one of the reasons he went to Jezreel is he probably figured one of two things was going to happen. Either Ahab and Jezebel would do as the people did, get on their faces and say, the Lord, He is the God, He is the God. That's what they should have done. Or, uh, by the way, how could anybody do anything different having witnessed what they just did? And so, either they would fall down and say, Lord, He is God, or else people would rise up and cast them out. Elijah must have thought for sure, I've done it. God will again be the God of Israel. But neither of these things happen. Instead of, the mailman shows up. So you got a, got a letter for you, Elijah. And the letter said, so let the God, from, from Jezebel, so let the gods do to me, verse 2, and more also, if I not 
Make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Elijah was afraid, ran for his life. I guess one vile woman is worse than 450 prophets, especially if you're talking about Jezebel. She was a horrible creature. And when he came to Beersheba, the Bible says he left his servant there, but he went a day's journey in the wilderness. And he came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And I read this, and I think, just stop, stop, just stop a second here. We are not that far removed from the greatest victory, really about one of the greatest victories in the Old Testament. You have the killing of Goliath, you have the fiery furnace, you have some big moments, then then lions then, but this is, this is some pretty big stuff. And here, kill me. The story in, in chapter 18, he's on top of the world. And then he, here he gives in to despair. In the last verse, 18 of, chap, of chapter 18, the last verse, uh, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. He girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. And then four verses later, it is enough, O Lord, take away my life. Elijah has been a part of an incredible revival service, if you will. Something like that. Four verses later, wants to kill himself. Now, if we stop and consider this, what we're really seeing here is the human condition. We all deal with this at some point in our lives, and we're all susceptible to it. I'm thinking of three people right now in the Bible who said, Lord, take my life away. There was Moses in Numbers chapter 11. There was Elijah here in 1 Kings chapter 19. There was Jonah in Jonah chapter 4. And these are not weak links of the Bible. These are not spiritual failures. In fact, in every one of them, you'll see a great spiritual victory just prior to when they said that. These are the strongest Christians, the ones who did great things for God. Discouraged. Kill me now. I love the tenderness of the Lord in this scene. Elijah's depressed. We didn't read this part, but I'll read it now. Verse 5, And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked and beheld, there was a cake baking in the coals and a cruise of water at his head, and he did eat and drink. He laid him down again. So, Elijah's depressed, he's suicidal, and in his misery he falls asleep. And while he's sleeping, this happens. An angel comes, this is incredible, an angel comes, bakes him a cake, and gently wakes him up. You know what kind of cake it was? It was angel food cake. Stay with the story here, okay? It was, that's an obvious one there. He ate, drank, lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time. Same thing happened. He got up, ate, drank. The Bible says strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days, 40 nights. There he found a cave at Mount Horeb and he set up camp. And, but we see three things here that God did that I found, found interesting. Uh, the first thing that God does for this despaired, disparaged, depressed, if you want to use that word, Elijah, first thing God does is nothing. He doesn't lecture him, doesn't counsel him, nothing. He sends an angel and cooks for him. That's all he does. Eat and rest. It's amazing. He does it a second time, and, and uh, all he says in the beginning is the journey is too great for thee. No lectures, no psychoanalysis, no support groups, no calls to repentance at this point, no nothing. You need a good meal, you need a good rest. That's the first thing we see that God did with Elijah. Uh, by the way, you'll find in your life that 
when you have an incredible mountaintop spiritual experience in your life, the devil will hit you hard. Wherefore, let uh, take heed, lest any man think he standeth, lest he fall. I just slaughtered that verse, but you get the verse, amen? Better take heed. We think we stand, lest we fall. And uh, that that's the, the idea here, I believe, is he, he's had this great spiritual high, and now the devil has socked him in the nose. There's no doubt in that. And uh, I find it interesting that the first thing God does is just lets him rest. Second thing God does is to meet him on Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb, they're at the same mountain. Uh, he wants Elijah to experience his presence. Oh, friend, this is so important. When you are discouraged, when you are down, it's absolutely imperative that you have some time with your father. Get, get with the Lord. But first, we see what happened here. We read it a minute ago, an incredible wind. Now, I know in South Dakota, we got some strong winds, but this was a wind. It was so strong, it tore the rocks apart, the Bible says. It was a strong wind, but God was not in the wind. And then we see a, an earthquake came. And after that, a fire came. Earthquake, wind, fire, three signs of the presence of God in terms of judgment. Yet Elijah realizes God's not in them. He was, and... By the way, still is in the still small voice. Elijah was learning here that bigness is not necessary to do God's work. He had seen something great at Mount Carmel. I mean, that's a, that was a big, big day, a dramatic and devastating event, kind of like wind, earthquake, fire. But God can work in the ordinary too. He can work through that still small voice of His Word. Now, some of you might be waiting for God to do something great and wonderful, some dramatic thing in your life to change out your situation and your circumstance. When you really need to do is just get into the Word of God. The still, small voice. The, the, what's interesting about Mount Carmel, that great dramatic event, guess what happened? Nothing happened. Nothing changed. I mean, it was, they all got down and they had a, they had an altar experience, but nothing really changed after that. Uh, that, that didn't, but, but the, the Word of God will change people, amen? And that's what we need to continue to, to focus on. We may not have a Mount Carmel church with a, a great size and fire falling from the sky, but what we do have is the Word of God. We can allow the Lord to work through His still small voice and uh, work in His power. So God gives him some encouragement, His presence there on Mount Horeb. And then number three, God says, I want you to get back to work. Verse 15, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Verse 16, and, and Jeho, the son of Nimshai, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha shalt thou anoint the prophet in thy room. So the three things God does here, he gives him some rest, he gives him some comfort with his word, and then he sends him back off to work. I think it's instructive when you look at those things. We could kind of build a message and go off in a rabbit trail, but as a seminary guy, uh, a college professor told me, not much meat on rabbits, so I don't chase those too often. But uh, we, that's a, there's a lesson there. Get some rest, get in the Word, and then get back to work. Okay, there's no real place in the Bible to where uh, we are to sit around, lay around, mope, and feel sorry for ourselves. You know, the problem with a pity party is no one wants to come to that party. Amen? No one wants to be there. And so, get back to work. I love this part of it here. Now, Elijah learned something. I think through this situation about the world and then something about himself and then something about the Lord. First of all, he learns this about the world that we all must learn if we're in ministry of some sort. Elijah's expectation, and maybe there's some pride involved here, 
made him too optimistic and then too pessimistic. I think he was completely convinced that his program, what he had in store here, would work. After Mount Carmel, everything would be put right. And now he's overwhelmed. He's shocked. He's surprised. He's in despair at just how deeply entrenched the evil of the world is. He's in anguish over how wicked people are, how sinful people are, how stupid people are, if we really get down to it. How, could the, how in the world could people see what they saw and not have their hearts turned back to God? In fact, that's what he said in his prayer for the fire to fall. He says, thou hast turned their hearts back again. But it didn't. It didn't. Elijah's in despair maybe because he didn't really understand the pull and the strength of sin. How, it's surprising sometimes to see this, how sinful people really are. It's surprising to see how sinful we really are sometimes. And to realize how strong that pull of sin is. As we deal with broken people, it does us well to remember this, that the pull of sin on their life, uh, our victories won't always be permanent. Sometimes we, haven't you ever tried to help somebody and, and then have them fall back into sin? Or maybe you've done the same thing in your life. That's why Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, kick him. Wait. No, that's not what it says. If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore. Restore such an one with a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Don't get yourself all high and mighty, that, oh my, I've helped these lowly sinners. You yourself could be tempted too, the Bible says. We need to be careful that we don't have that type of an attitude. Elijah then, <laughs> then he gets to the woe is me stage. I'm the only Christian left. Now, we don't use the word Christian in the Old Testament. You know what I mean. I mean, in a sense here, I'm the only one left. No one else in all of Israel. There's a, really, if you get down to the core here, there's a little pride going on here, thinking I'm the only one left. I have a problem with churches or people that claim that people, everybody has to be like them or them. They're the only ones. We have churches like that, exclusionary. Now, I believe strongly in ecclesiastical separation. I believe that, that we ought to not be uh, yoked up with wrong doctrine and such. But I do not believe that you have to be just like me or you have to be in our church to do anything for God. Amen? God uses people all over the place. Can I bust your bubble today? God does not need you to get his job done. Now, he'd love to use you. He doesn't need you. He'd do it without, with or without me. We are so selfishly inclined sometimes. We think that the world started when we were born. Now, I know the world existed before I was born. I don't understand the point of living in it before I was born. But uh, I understand it existed before and it will exist after. It is pride in our own program that keeps us from seeing what God's doing in the world. Pride will lead us into, into ridiculous optimism, and pride will keep us in tremendous pessimism it did with him, these roller coaster movements that Elijah had here. But here's, here's something that happens, and I never really considered this before until I read it uh, this time around, when, Eli when he sends Elijah in verse 15 to go anoint Hazael, king of Syria. Now that's... Stop and think about this. It's kind of astounding here. A prophet of Israel going to anoint a pagan king. There's no indication anywhere that this guy was a believer. In fact, he wasn't. We know later God used him in judgment against Israel. What's God saying here? I believe one of the things he says, Elijah, listen, I'm in charge here. 
I'm doing my work. My work's going to get done, and I can even use a pagan to do it, but I'm the one doing the work when Elijah's, nobody else but me. Did you, did you notice, by the way, when Elijah t- says that in verse 14, there, I, even I, only am left. Did you notice God doesn't refute him there? Poor me, I'm the only one left, Lord. Elijah, get to work. Go, go do this, go do that. It starts giving him some work. I think he's letting him know here, look, I'm, I'm, my work's getting done. And uh, he does tell him later, of course, there's others too. But uh, the first thing Elijah had to learn was something about the world and the sinfulness of sin. And he had to recognize that he wasn't the only one. And we have to recognize also as we do the work of the Lord in our Sunday school class or our youth group or whatever we're involved in, if I think it's all about me, I'm in for some serious despair. It's about him. And then Elijah learned something about himself and, of course, us as we look at it. I think this lesson is simply a practical one. I'm going to land here long, but just just to mention, a lot of times we are super spiritual about people's problems. We figure that if you're discouraged, you must be in sin. You know, Elijah was tired. He was tired. Uh, this might sound, I'm not trying to get, uh, use psychobabble or worldly type thinking, but he was tired, okay? This was a long day. Not only did he go through the tremendous emotional expenditure of that, what happened on that mountain, killing all those prophets as well, and then he ran all the way to Jezreel. He's tired. He's fatigued. And we, sometimes we, we, we make the mistake forgetting that people have a physical nature. Sometimes we're down or somebody's down, just simply they need some rest. They need to, Jesus took time apart, and we all need that time apart. What is that saying? You better take time apart before you come apart. You know, that, that can happen in our life. So there's times like this. We don't need a lecture. We don't need, we, we need some quiet time. We need some time alone with God. All problems are not sin. Many are, but not all of them are. God, the supreme counselor here, takes a multiple approach. The first thing he did with Elijah is just let him sleep. Here you go. Eat something. Let him sleep again. Let him rest. Eventually, he, of course, told him he needed some time apart where he can hear his word and what he has to say. But I found that interesting. Also, he learned something about God. What, what God is saying, what is he saying when he brings the earthquake, the wind, and the fire? These are dramatic events. They, uh, they are big, smashing events. But God, I believe, is trying to give the message. These things don't change people's lives. My word changes people's lives. That's still true today. You know, we can do all kinds of things, and we do things to try to reach people. We run a VBS. We have big bouncy castles for kids to come to VBS. This year we had, we went all out, man. We got worldly. We got a snow cone machine this year, amen, to give to the kids. We do all these different things to try to reach children and try to reach people. And uh, really, those things are good, but that's not going to change anybody's life. What's going to change people's lives is this book right here. You and I aren't going to change people's lives with the power of our wonderful personality. Not going to happen. It needs the Word of God. And so, you don't need miraculous, dramatic events. You need my Word. Now, yes, God can do the Mount Carmel thing. And sometimes He does. And I like it when He does. Amen? Don't you like when God works some just huge miracle in your life and you're excited and you're you're just on top of the world, but He doesn't always do it like that. In fact, I don't think that's the way he usually does it. 
Besides, again, a reminder, look at Mount Carmel. It didn't change anything. It's a wonderful thing to be a part of. But it really didn't change anything. God's Word is what changes. Remember the story of the rich man in hell, Luke 16? It's the same type of thing here. Uh, He is in hell and he says to Father Abraham, send Lazarus. He said, I have five brethren that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. He also said this, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, they would repent. What does Abraham say in response? Do you remember? He says exactly what, what I think Elisha's message is here. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What did He basically said, they got the Bible, Mr. Rich Man. They have the Bible. They have the Word of God. It's, it's God speaking through the Word of God that changes hearts, not miracles. Say, Pastor, prove that. Well, I can, I think, because if you read the rest of the, uh, if, you, if you read through the Gospels, you will find a Lazarus that was raised from the dead. Different Lazarus. He was raised from the dead and did flocks of people come to Jesus and get right with God and give their hearts to Him? No, they wanted to kill Him. Uh, actually, again, they wanted to kill Him again. He was raised from the dead and the, the people just conspired how they might kill Him. Miracles don't change people. The Word of God changes people. We had better remember that And by the way, that's why it's important for us to immerse ourselves in this Word. I I love good books. I started out saying that. I love good books, but that's not going to change my life. There's only one book that can say it is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. and It divides and it cuts asunder uh, the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's the living Word of God. There's something else here. The earthquake, the wind, and the fire are tokens of God's judgment. I believe the still small voice is the gentleness of His grace. Now judgment, we better, it was mentioned even in Sunday school this morning as well, before we come to Christ as our Savior, we first have to realize we are deserving of judgment. Amen? We have to recognize that. Every single one of us had better remember what we deserve. But judgment is only a means to an end. Judgment is not the main way God is going to go about things. And this is probably what John the Baptist struggled with. John the Baptist said to Jesus in Luke 7, he sent a message, he was in jail, and he sent a message to Jesus, said, Art thou the one, or art thou he that should come, or look we for another? This was John the Baptist. Jesus quotes Isaiah 35. This is important, don't miss this. He says, uh, he quotes Isaiah 35, Tell John the things you have seen and heard, how the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the, to the poor the gospel is preached. John the Baptist, you see, had the spirit of Elijah. John the Baptist, like Elijah, thinks that judgment is the main thing the world needs. You, he told about Jesus coming, do you remember, all the way back in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, he said, He that cometh after me shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner. He shall burn up chaff with his unquenchable fire. That's what he said about Jesus. Now John's in prison. Here you are doing the works of the kingdom. Where's the judgment? I don't see the fire. I'm in prison. You're about to be killed yourself. Where's the fire of God? And oh, this is where the gospel is so sweet. Jesus' answer to all that is, I came... To receive the judgment. The fire of God is falling, but it's falling on me. See, He took our punishment upon Himself. The undeserving one took the punishment of the deserving, you and I. 
That's why the eyes of the blind are opened and the deaf hear. That's how you can experience forgiveness. Judgment comes down on Jesus Christ so God can give you grace. The gospel can help you understand the world. It can help you understand your troubles and God's purposes. Otherwise, you'll be whiplashed back and forth between pessimism and optimism. Big highs and deep lows. You know people like that. Always always up, up on a mountain or way down on the bottom of a valley. You, you get a good dose of the gospel and you get the word of God, uh, you, you get into the word of God and you begin, create a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and it'll help you to uh, be a little more even plain there. The gospel helps you understand yourself, helps you understand the Lord. He comes in grace, He comes through the word. He's in the still small voice. Maybe you're here today, friend, and you need God to do something in your heart and your life. You've been waiting for something big. You've been waiting for that, that, uh, that, that fire falling from heaven. Can I tell you, friend, if you've got one of these in your lap, if you've got one of these in your home, this is where the answer is at right here. The Word of God. A still, small voice. Get into the Word and let His still, small voice speak to you. And that's how He's going to do it, through His Word. Amen? Every head bowed, every eye closed. I want to give you an opportunity today, friend, if you're here and you're not saved, you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, well, listen, friend, that's how you begin your relationship with the Lord. You are not able to uh, really, really receive any kind of benefits of the Christian life until you become a Christian. So if you're here today and you say, Preacher, I don't know for sure. If something happened to me right now, I don't know for sure if I'd be in heaven. Would you slip up your hand and let me pray for you? I'm here. I don't know for sure. I, I hope so. I think so. But I don't know so. All right. Thank you so much. How about you, dear Christian? Would you stand along with me as she begins to play? The altar is open. And I ask you to respond if the Lord spoke to your heart today. Maybe there are some in here that uh, you, you just you haven't been in the Word the way you should be. You've been expecting God to do something externally. Maybe you're like Elijah and you're in that cave right now. You're discouraged, despaired. Oh, let him, let him lift you up through His Word. Let her play through a couple of verses.